Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I mentioned this last week, but uh, I counted wrong. And so, well, we didn't count wrong. I thought I had an extra week, and so I used the extra week back in Daniel 4 or 5 somewhere. And then uh, Pastor Lance sent me a really kind email a week or two ago, like, just so you know, these are the last couple Wednesdays. And I, wait, okay, so we're not, it doesn't add up perfectly. So uh, we're, we're going to do half of chapter 11 tonight. So really, uh, the last three chapters of Daniel, 10, 11, 12, are one big unit together, uh, all one vision or prophecy that kind of comes together. And how it unfolds is you have chapter 10, where you kind of get some setting of what's going on. And Daniel has a, I've put it in quotes, messenger comes to him. There's a little bit of disagreement on who that messenger is. So that's why it's messenger. Uh, But at least in the early section, it's probably a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ. And so uh, we'll we'll just, we'll say the messenger comes to him and they have some interaction. And then really at the end of chapter 10 into 11 and 12, that's where this messenger starts detailing uh, prophecies of future kingdoms. And a lot of this will be review of what we've already covered. But then there's more detail here, uh, referencing back to chapter 8. So you already recognize maybe the name there, Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to talk about him again tonight. And then then in the middle of chapter 11, it kind of transitions into a discussion of the tribulation. So going back to last week with Daniel 9, there's those 77s. And the first 69 lead us up to the crucifixion of Christ. And we're still waiting for that last group of seven, that last seven years. And what we understand is that that will be a future time of judgment on Israel, on earth, right before the kingdom is established. And chapter 11, verse 36, and into chapter 12, we're we're talking a lot about uh, items that are concerned with the tribulation period. And so, at least that would be, I think, a consistent way of looking at it. There's always differences of how people divide things up. I think that's uh, a good way to look at it. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. It breaks down into five sections. And so we'll start with uh, verses 1 through 3. So uh, you can see up on the PowerPoint, there's, uh, I don't think any of this is on your half sheet. So if you want to scribble some things down. Kind of get some of the background. It says it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And uh, so kind of comparing to chapter 9, chapter 9 said it's the first year of Darius, and then we have the third year of Cyrus. And these are most likely overlapping rulers with the Medo-Persian empire. And so chapter 10, this vision or prophecy would be in the year 536. And Chapter 9, Daniel received that in 538. So just as you're tracking, uh, 9 and 10 are chronological that way. Um, So it's two years after Daniel 9. There's a phrase in here that I think we want to look at a little closer. Uh, So in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And you can go back into the earlier chapters of Daniel, and we have seen him referenced with that name previously. Uh, the message, so really the, the content of what the messenger brings him in chapter 10, 11, and 12, uh, the narrator, which is most likely Daniel, saying this message is true, 
which we've emphasized that before when we get to these prophecies, there is a, a, a high premium put on this true message uh, that we know this is from the one who's in control, the one who knows the future. So these predictions are true and trustworthy. And then the second half of that phrase is a little confusing. Uh, I'm reading from New King James. So if you had a pew Bible, it would say, but the appointed time was long, um, almost speaking to like maybe the events of the prophecy are long ways into the history or into the future. Um, but quite literally what it says is the, the time is um, difficult or troublesome. And so you can see there on the screen, what this is probably referring to is either Daniel's state, which we're going to read about that in the, the, this section and the next section, that he's kind of weary and troubled and he needs help from the messenger to even receive the message. So he, he's pretty worn out. And um, so it could be referring to him, himself, uh, that, that difficulty, or it could be referring to the content within the message. So, like, we are going to talk about a lot of wars tonight, a lot of fights, and that's probably the best way to look at it. So the message is true, and the message also concerns a lot of, of troubling events, like wars and things like that. So if, if you're curious what uh, most translations have a little flag there and then have some more words at the bottom, and so that's what's there, what's probably referring to. And then... Uh, verses 2 and 3 uh, remind us of things we've seen Daniel doing earlier on in the, in the book. Um, we remember him praying three times a day in Daniel 6. We remember him in chapter 1 uh, making the decision that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's portion. And uh, we kind of see some remnants or th- those ideas coming up again here. So he's, he says he's mourning in verse 2. We're not really sure why he's mourning. It doesn't specifically tell us. It could be in reference to previous prophecies he's received. I'm not really sure if that's very reasonable considering the last one he got was two years ago. You know, you'd probably be like, Daniel, it's time to move on, buddy. Um, so I don't, I don't really think that's it. Um, he is very old, and the time of Israel's exile is uh, at the end and uh, so I think it could be a mourning for God's people or even for himself uh, not having gone back to the promised land yet. I think that could be a part of it, uh, but we really don't know. But he's, he's not having a, a great time, and it mentions that this is a three-week period. And verse 3 gives us more info uh, that he's actually incorporating some uh, dietary restriction, probably some fasting as a part of this, so he's eating no pleasant food. <laughs> so you can uh, imagine in your own mind what that uh, might look like. He's eating raw broccoli, no ranch. Um, so uh, no meat or wine came into my mouth. Um, I mean, that, you just, okay. So he's, he's fasting, probably in a sense of devotion, trying to seek the Lord and the Lord's will, uh, be a very common activity. And again, it mentions he's doing this for three weeks. So, uh, you know, when's the last time you ate nothing but disgusting food for three weeks, right? You know, that's our application tonight. Um, I, I, think he's, I think he is recognizing personal, uh, spiritual, uh, I don't know what the word for it is, he's discouragement. 
And I think he's intentionally seeking the Lord to be encouraged. Uh, He's mourning and he restricts himself, humbles himself. That's a word that's going to come up later uh, in in a means to uh, receive blessing from the Lord. And what happens is uh, he gets direct answer. Maybe not immediate, but he gets a direct answer. And, And so that gets us to the next section. Okay. So you can see, I think some of this or all of this is on your half sheet, but uh, it's also on the PowerPoint. So think about, uh, actually, <laughs> you're actually missing the first slide, so sorry about that. Uh, I think this was a, a record on the, uh, the time I got this handout to Brittany to be printed. It was a, it was a, late, a late edit today, so uh, there's probably going to be a handful of mistakes. Anyway, um, so on the screen, not on your half sheets, you think about the timing here. So if you, if you look at um, verse 13, so he, he talks about being withstood. And this is the messenger that is talking to Daniel. He talks about being withstood for 21 days, which is interesting because 21 days would be three weeks, right? And that's the same time frame we know from verses 2 and 3 that Daniel has been devoting himself to fasting and seeking the Lord. So it's really interesting that he's praying, seeking Help from the Lord, understanding. Uh, Verse 12 uses the word uh, setting your heart for understanding and humbling yourself, so bringing yourself low. He's doing that for three weeks, and he's not getting any answers. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I pray for things, and you kind of like open one eye, and you're like, did anything change? And, And so he's waiting for three weeks, and you get some insight here that immediately when he started praying, uh, God was seeking to answer, but there was resistance. And uh, so verse 13, what we're talking about is angelic or uh, spiritual oppression or um, uh, warring going on. So Michael, reference there, is referring to Michael the archangel, most likely. I guess there's a possibility there could be multiple angels named Michael, but it's probably the same one we know from other places. Um, and when he says the prince of the kingdom of Persia, most people take that to not mean a literal prince. But since we're in this context of a messenger from heaven and Michael the archangel, this is probably an uh, angelic or demonic being who is behind the scenes in this kingdom of Persia that's resisting what God is attempting to do. And the specific wording, you know, this prince of Persia withstood me, the messenger, for three weeks. Um, so it's just interesting that that timing lines up pretty, pretty good. Um, so the messenger is sent, but he's withheld for three weeks. And then we, we notice it's the 24th day where this is happening in verse 4. So even after the three weeks, uh, you know, he had to wait for the next business day. You know, it must have been a Friday. He had to wait until Monday. And, uh, but so it's, it's the 24th day. And uh, here he comes. And who is the messenger? And so you look at the descriptions in verses 5 and 6. And uh, I don't think for sake of time we will go there. But if you turn over to Revelation chapter 1, Christ is almost exactly described this way. With uh, some of these descriptions of his eyes and of his feet or legs and just his person, what he looks like. Um, and you see it, it's the third bullet there on the PowerPoint. You've got to use your imagination when you read this. And we, we talked about this, I think, going back into maybe chapter uh, 6 or 7, that that's intentional. 
Like poetry makes you think. That's why it's different than prose. Prose is just a normal story. This happened, this happened, this happened. But when there's like very vivid description, you're meant to imagine it. And your imagination actually stirs your emotions. So you're meant to, to think about what this guy looks like. It's intentional. So just, you know, just close your eyes maybe and think about this man. He lifted his eyes and he looks. And behold, there's a man clothed in linen whose waist is girded with gold. And that's almost directly referenced in Revelation chapter 1. His body is like beryl, uh, which most of you, most of us don't really know. What it, these are all very shiny, bright entities. Uh, so his, his body is like beryl. It's, it's shining. It's bright. His face like the appearance of lightning. So you just think the last time you saw a lightning bolt, that's the color of his face. Uh, his eyes, torches of fire. So in the midst of that lightning bolt, here's these big balls of fire. Um, his arms and feet like burnished bronze. So uh, glow, like kind of glistening, like that glistening of metal. Like strong but bright. Um, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. So I think that speaks to the volume of it, but also like it just kind of, takes over, you know, uh, very loud, very uh, large presence. And uh, so when you compare those descriptions to Revelation 1, uh, it's very common that we would understand that this is Christ. This is a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ. Uh, it's going to come up later in the next section that Daniel actually refers to him as Lord. That's the word Adonai. And uh, so this, I think it's very reasonable to look at this and say, this is Jesus. Now, I don't think Daniel knows, oh, this is Jesus, the Messiah who's going to come and, and die on the cross for everyone. I don't think he knows all those things that we know. But he looks at this guy and he knows, like, I'm not worthy to be here. Uh, very similar reactions uh, that you would see other people have throughout Scripture to when they're in the presence of God. Uh, very weak falls on his face, needs help uh, to just be in the presence of God. And so I think uh, that's what we're looking at here. He's been praying for three weeks. He's mourning. Uh, we don't really know why, but he's asking God for help. And God literally comes. Christ comes to him. And uh, so we're going to get to this in verse 16. Um, but again, there's a comparison to the book of Revelation with the Son of Man, um, and that is sort of used in verse 16, the idea of the, the sons of men, of men or man, uh, and there's like a discrepancy as far as like one of the words is plural, one of the words is singular, so some people would say, oh, it's not son of man, it's sons of men, so it's not a title, um, I think that there's ambiguity in the language. You know, I think that it actually is that title. And I think Revelation is using that title uh, with all the information. And so uh, I do think that this is a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ. So uh, what does the messenger say? Uh, and that's, he starts speaking in verse 11. And I know we kind of jumped over some verses there, but we just got to keep moving for the sake of time. Um, what does he say? Uh, o Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I now 
I have now been sent to you. So um, it's going to be repeated later on, but Daniel, you are loved. We shouldn't just glide over that verse. The first thing he says to him is, Daniel, you're, you're loved. Um, and then there's another, another phrase that he's going to repeat a couple of times uh, coming up that's pretty, pretty good too in verse 12. But I want you to notice um, we see the purpose for why Christ has come. Uh, it's to understand. He is here to help Daniel understand. I think that gives us insight into what Daniel was asking for. He's probably curious about, do I get to go back to Israel? Will the full nation go back to Israel? You know, what's going to happen with your people, God? And uh, he gets an answer uh, that's going to span the three, four hundred years in the immediate future. But he also gets an answer directly from Christ that's going to speak to the end, like the actual end, like when his people will be fully brought back and, and completed. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, like perfect righteousness will come. And so I think Daniel's probably wondering about that. And so Christ comes to give him understanding and he's going to give him the full picture, um, at least full in the sense of all of the time from then and uh, this year to the end of the tribulation. Uh, let's see, verse 12, another great phrase, do not fear. Um, you know, when I was reading this and kind of meditating on it today, it made me think of the stories in the gospel when, you know, Jesus is asleep in the boat and the storm is going crazy and he's, you know, just wakes up and just stops it. Uh, or when he's walking on the water in the storm, it's like, don't be afraid, it's me. And it's just such a comforting, like th- this is what you would expect Jesus to say if he showed up, right? Hey, I love you. Don't be afraid. You know, it's just very encouraging. And uh, it's just a great reminder of, of how God and his posture towards us, how he is towards us when we turn to him in, in humble prayer. That he, th- this is how he always responds to his people. I'm here with you and I love you and you do not need to be afraid. Um, and kind of nestled in the end of Daniel, we have a great reminder of the character and the demeanor of, of our God, a very loving and patient and um, strong, helpful God. Keep moving here. Uh, we already mentioned this in verse 13, uh, but we do get to this idea, this reality of unseen spiritual warfare. Uh, the prince of the kingdom of Persia is probably, uh, we're, we're talking about demonic forces, that are opposing Christ coming to Daniel. Uh, And so why are they opposing him? Well, that's kind of what they do (laughs) in a very general sense, but you think about what they're trying, what Christ is coming to do. He's coming to give truth and literally prophecies for the ending of the age. And he's giving those to Daniel to write them down. And we're reading them thousands of years later. And I think our adversary would love to oppose the truth being recorded. Right? That makes perfect sense. And so I think that's probably what they're trying to stop, is the transmission of the message. Uh, Again, that's speculation. I can't prove that, but I would say it's a pretty good guess. Uh, And then again, we have a mention of Michael the archangel. So there's angelic forces at work at the end of the section here. And 
Uh, Daniel's one of the books in the Bible where we get a lot of peeks into uh, that unseen spiritual world. So that gets us to the next section, uh, 15, 10, 15 through 11, verse 1. Uh, so, as I noted, uh, there will be mistakes in this. That should be 10.15, not 10.5. Um, <laughs> so uh, if that's on your, I think the handout's correct, but the PowerPoint is not, so don't be confused. So there's this second interaction that's kind of a break here. Uh, the, the messenger has not left, but then you just kind of sense a different scene happening. So it starts off with Daniel kind of recognizing his humanity, I think is a good way of saying it. So when he had spoken these words to me, what does Daniel do? Again, this is very common action for a human that recognizes they're in the presence of God. Uh, what does he do? I turned my face toward the ground and you know, he shut up, became speechless. And suddenly this one, like the son of man or the sons of men, touched my lips. And th- this reminds us of Isaiah chapter 6, where we know pretty confidently there that that's an angel touching Isaiah and uh, as he prepares to speak this message. And there's, that's another reason why some people think that there's two characters here, that there is this pre-incarnate appearing of Christ, but then there's also an angelic being alongside of him. Uh, I don't think that the text dictates that. I, it's a possibility, but I think it's also pretty reasonable that it's just the same guy the whole way through. Um, if he wanted to clarify that there was a second character, I think he could have done that a number of ways. So I think the best way to look at this is Christ comes and Daniel kind of realizes who he's speaking with and he falls down on the ground. And then Christ picks him up and touches his lips. I think it's not in a sense of purifying maybe like uh, Isaiah 6 is, but I think it's like a, a lot of the interaction here is meant to strengthen him and encourage him. Uh, so I think that's the way we would understand it. Um, so um, we already said this earlier. He calls him in the middle of 16, my Lord, Adonai. Uh, again, I, I don't think he would be calling just some angelic messenger Lord. Um, so it's probably Christ. And, uh, Again, he, he mentions a handful of times through here uh, at the end of 16, the middle of 17, the end of 18, that he in himself is without strength. And what this character keeps doing is strengthening him. And I think he's divinely enabling him to receive the message he's about to receive. Uh, he's trying to encourage him in word, but then I think he is physically enabling Daniel. Uh, if you remember, he's probably... Uh, if he's not 90 and he, he's closer to 90 than 80 at this point, uh, he's already been kind of mourning and, and not eating for three weeks. So you just imagine he's probably very frail, very tired, and then he's also kind of broken, like spiritually broken in the presence of God. And so he needs help here, which I think is a great reminder for us that Daniel's just a normal dude. He's just like we are. He's not special. He's not unique in his spirituality. He's completely dependent on Christ, just like we are. Um, And then that gets us to what does the messenger say, uh, starting in verse 19. 
And he repeats what he said before. O man, greatly loved, do not fear. So, you know, very Christ-like things to say, right? Peace be to you, be strong. Yes, be strong. He's, He's encouraging him, he's strengthening him. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And just make a note here, if you just track, um, I don't necessarily think it's intended to do this, but it presents a really good rubric or paradigm for how prayer and communion with the Lord should look. So if you start in verse 15, Daniel realizes he's in the presence of God. And what does he do? He humbles himself, bows down, and he's just, you know what, I don't need to talk. I don't need to talk. Just, Just shut up. Just be in the presence of God. And then what happens in verse 16? He is strengthened, and he is lifted up. And, you know, I, don't, I obviously don't expect that to happen. You know, if we're getting down on our knees and praying, you shouldn't expect to levitate or for someone to pick you up off the ground. But uh, he's, he's in the presence of God waiting for the Lord to commune with him. And he does, and he strengthens him. And then in verse 18... Uh, there's a second strengthening. Uh, verse 17, he recognizes again, like, why am I even, like, I, why am I even in your presence? Like, what can I say to you, Lord? And he's strengthened again. And then, okay, Lord, now what do you have for me? And I just think it's a really neat paradigm of how we, again, going back to uh, Daniel 9, we would learn how to pray by watching Daniel. If we followed that pattern right there, I think we'd be doing pretty good. Go into your devotion time and just come into the presence of God and just be, be still and know that he's God. And let him strengthen you in the inner man and you, you humble yourself and then you go to his word. What do, you ha- what do you want to tell me? You read the word. You know, I think you could follow that paradigm, slightly adjusted in our modern context, but that was kind of something I was meditating on today as I went through that. Uh, And then verse 20 again, just to kind of say something we already said. Um, The purpose of why he's here. So he asks Daniel, Christ, the Lord, asks, do you know why I've come? And we already know why he's come. He's giving him understanding. He has a message for him. Um, Verse 21, why is he here? I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. The reason he's come, it's an answer to David's petition And the answer to David's mourning and fasting is that he's going to give him a message that's going to help him understand how God is going to immediately and then ultimately be sovereign and and deliver his people. So all of that sets the stage for chapter 11. So So, so far, we're just on the bank of the river and watching Daniel interact with Christ. That's all of chapter 10. So then we get to chapter 11, and uh, now we actually get to some material. Uh, So you can see on your sheets, it's also up on the screen, um, we've briefly covered some of this, at least this same time frame, when we were in chapter 8. And if you remember chapter 8, we have this discussion of this Greek kingdom, and there's the four horns that would rise up, right? And uh, we were talking about Alex the Great and then his four generals that would take his kingdom after he died. 
This is a much more specific deciphering of that same time period with kings of the south and the north really referring to like Egyptian realm and then north into the Palestine and other areas. Um, And so you can see outlined here uh, specific rulers that it's most likely referring to. So if you look at your bullets, uh, Seleucus, um, the Seleucids would have been one of the four kingdoms uh, or one of the four generals coming out of Alexander the Great. And then Ptolemy would have been another one of those four. And in this region of the earth, so the Palestinian area, Israel, Egypt, etc., and then where they are now in the Babylonian Persian area, which would be north and east, uh, it's the Seleucids and the Ptolemies that are kind of ruling the roost for a couple hundred years here. And you can see the verses that are referencing those specific events. So this, it's very detailed, it's very intricate, and we really just don't have time to look at each portion of each verse. There's 135 predictions in, um, in chapter 11 about these future kings, kingdoms, wars that would be fought, and the intricacies of them. And uh, so I could give you some recommendations. Uh, Leon Wood is, is the guy's name, L-E-O-N, uh, Wood, W-O-D. He has a, a good commentary on the book of Daniel. And I think he, uh, from a fairly consistent position, would address each verse. And so if you're interested in that, I think Pastor Lance has it in his office. And maybe he'd let you borrow it. And if he doesn't, I have a copy as well. Um, sometimes people are people have different standards with their books. So anyway. Um, and then uh, Regular Baptist Press has a handful of resources that would walk through some of these things too. If you want to study it out, it's really... Um, it's not, there's no hidden meanings here. I think that's key. Sometimes when we get to prophecy, we talked about this a few weeks ago, it's like, oh, the king of the north, ah, the king of the south, what does that mean? Well, it's actually referring to rulers in geographic locations. (laughs) And they're fighting with each other. And it's just very straightforward. It's not meant to be some weird or deep meaning. And I think you could track historically, you could pick up a Western Civ textbook and you'd read all about this and the years that it happened. And uh, the significance of it is that this is predicted in 536, you know, two, three, four hundred years-ish before some of this stuff is even happening. And uh, so it is a predicted prophecy of many rulers and many fights between uh, a lot of Greek or Greek uh, descending generals. Um, so that's, that's pretty much what that whole section is referring to. Uh, the only thing we haven't mentioned there in verse 2, uh, he mentions that there's this king that's very rich in Persia that stirs up the realm of Greece. And it's noted there, too, that that's probably Xerxes. And uh, we talked about you know, that, that word Greece before. It, it's not a transliteration. So if you pronounce that Hebrew word, it's not Greece. It's actually pronounced Javan or Yavan, but that word uh, is relating to, um, you go to Genesis 10, and that's one of the sons of, uh, I can't remember who it is, but it's, it's referencing a geographic location where that descendant settled, and so that's the, that Greek area is kind of the legend of where those people went, you know, type of an idea, and that's pretty consistent in the literature if you 
even in secular people would understand that that's what's happening. So it's not like we're grasping at straws there. Uh, so that gets us to the last section. Um, I don't want to rush by that, but it is pretty straightforward. It's just a lot of history happening, just predicted a few hundred years in advance, which shouldn't surprise us. We've already seen that happen in the book of Daniel. But uh, for the sake of time, we'll go to the last section, and I'll, I'll read this one. So verse 21, And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a great, very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the, time, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For the ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So, shall, so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the, the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So moving really quickly here, go to the next slide. Uh, we're now referencing a very specific individual again. Uh, you can see how he's described. He's deceitful. He's evil. He wants to destroy. And then um, in verse 31, it talks about this defiling of the sanctuary. And again, we could compare that back with chapter 8, and we have very consistent ideas happening. And uh, there's some details here, and it's on your sheet, uh, that this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, in 167 B.C., he goes into the temple and he offers a pig, which pork is not kosher for the Hebrews, so it's a huge no-no, takes the pig in and offers it to Zeus within the temple in 167. And, and most historians would reference that as this event, this desolation, uh, this abomination that's happening and then we also know that in the future tribulation period, the Antichrist will do a very similar action. He will make covenant with God's people. 
for half of the last week, but the midway point of the tribulation will be triggered when he essentially does the same thing. He will go into the temple. It'll actually be worse than um, offering a pig. He will set himself up as the object of worship within the temple. And that will happen three and a half years into the tribulation. Uh, But so anyway, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is this ruler that we're discussing here. And um, again, we could could go verse by verse and kind of peel apart some of the layers. We already talked about some of this uh, history with the history of Hanukkah and the Maccabeans that did rise up. And you kind of see some some remnants of that in 32 through 34, uh, where there will be people that know the Lord and will will try to stand, and many of them will die, uh, but then eventually we know what happens, that they did retake the temple, and that is what Hanukkah is a celebration of, is that is when they re, uh, re-took and, I don't know what the word is, uh, purified probably, purified the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, so, uh, so far, just to recap what we looked at, Christ comes to Daniel and answered a prayer, And he says, I'm going to give you some understanding in this message. And what has he given him so far? He's given him some very immediate history. These are the kings that are coming. This is what's going to happen. And then you see Israel kind of woven in through this, especially with Antiochus Epiphanes. There's going to be some interaction with Israel. What happens in verse 36 is where we transition to, uh, most people think we're transitioning to the tribulation period. We're going to cover that in a couple of weeks, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe why we would break it there. Um, but as we wrap up tonight, as we have done, uh, try to summarize with a theological point, God's knowledge of and plan for the future of Israel is true. And that's been highlighted multiple times. Uh, just to uh, point out again, verse 21, I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. Uh, when he shows up, he said, what I tell you is true. Or, excuse me, verse 1, he says, this message is true. And so we're, we're reminded that these are very confident prophecies, especially because of who they came from. This is directly from uh, the mouth of Christ. Uh, and so his knowledge of and plan for the future of Israel is true, and our understanding of God's sovereign plan should comfort us in our fear and strengthen us in our weakness. And uh, yes, uh, Christ's physical presence is enabling and strengthening Daniel, strengthening Daniel. But the purpose of why he came, the comfort that he leaves with Daniel, is the word, the message that there is a plan uh, for Israel forever. And we, we don't really um, get to see the full picture because we're stopping halfway through. But just peek over um, into chapter 12. Uh, and this is, you know, like I said, 10 through 12 is kind of all one unit here. And just look at the beginning of chapter 12. Um, at that time, Michael, so here we are talking about uh, the archangel again. He shall stand up, that the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So we're now firmly in the tribulation. Even to that time and at the time of your people. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And then here's where you, you just get a little taste again of the, the end. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, 
So those who have died, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, we just see a little glimpse again of uh, at the very end of Christ's plan is, is resurrection for all the living. And uh, for those that are written in that book, um, we're, we live with him forever. Uh, but there is another category, uh, those who will be resurrected to everlasting torment. Um, just a little taste of what we'll, what we'll talk about a week from now. Um, but knowing God's plan should be a comfort to us who know him, should strengthen us when we uh, are, feel our humanness and our weakness. Uh, so, some thoughts on application here, and I think we kind of hit these as we went. But uh, that paradigm of Daniel's interaction with the messenger, starting in verse 15, I think is just a great model to follow. You go to do your devotions, just, you know, be still. You know, don't, don't talk as much. You know, I talk all the time. I'm, it's, you know, I, I need to be silent. That's a good, a good application for me. Um, another thought here, going back to that vision of Christ in chapter 10. I already mentioned this, but it is intentional that you imagine who he is. And maybe take some time to read through those visions in Revelation 2. Uh, T-O-O, it's in Revelation 1, but Revelation also and, and to picture Christ, uh, and that will stir your affections. And you go to the end, we already did that uh, a couple weeks ago, but try to imagine that last day. Uh, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. There's, there's no night because he is the light of our presence. Um, that will stir your heart. If you imagine him that way, you, you allow yourself to see what is being portrayed to you about who Christ is. And then, uh, again, recognizing the historical accuracy of prophecy should give us confidence in the truth of God's word, not just the prophetic sections, but all of it. And that that this isn't just a bunch of hodgepodge poems and ideas written from some random dudes. Uh, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And we have a more prophetic word confirmed and I think as Peter says that in Second Peter 1, he's saying we have a more confirmed word than even being in the presence of Christ. Like, like I saw Christ, is what Peter's saying. And we have a more prophetic confirmed word than that even, than being an eyewitness. Um, so uh, with that word, what should we do? We should seek understanding, ask for help, and devote ourselves to knowledge of God's word, which I think is what Daniel is doing at the beginning of chapter 10. He's He's seeking, he's, he's wanting to understand what God and his plan is for the people of Israel, and he, he gets it. And so we, in that same fashion, can seek and, and understand the word.